Okay, so the second in the series. Uh, Lord willing, next week is evolution, and the week after that is the caveman issue. Tonight we're talking about design. A little bit of review, not much from last week, not much because we've got a, we've got a good bit more to cover here tonight. But uh, the, the premise here, and, and let me just say again, um, there's this thing in, there's this thing in uh, academic circles called peer review, and someone comes out with an article, some research, and they publish it, and then folks uh, who are in their area of science look at what they've written or proposed, and they critique it, and they write out um, whether they think it holds water or not, uh, if it's good, or if they find holes in it, they, they let that be known. And that is an ongoing process in scientific, um, in the whole area there. By the nature of what we're covering here, um, there are two vastly different camps, a secular, non-religious, non-faith camp that offers their theories on how this all happened, and then the faith camp that says, we believe there is evidence of the supernatural, and we believe the creation uh, by God. And so when you talk about this issue, and you're trying to explain things, and you're coming from two completely different poles, uh, there will be conflict in ideas. So when I point out things that I see as weaknesses or error, uh, or just um, clarify, speak on things that are theory and point those out, it's not that I'm trying to denigrate someone, but you cannot point out that position without having a, a critique of it. So it's done in that spirit. It's not done to uh, be mean or belittling. So I want to keep that out there. So the secular view of, <coughs> we, we talked about how did matter come into being last week and where did the universe come from and how that happened. The secular view is that, um, and it's aggressively pushed in most of our schools, in most of academia, and throughout the media. And it's that we got here somehow uh, by first cause that was matter only. Matter only. Uh, and that's what modern science is, uh, that's the position modern, most of modern science is, is, is written about, is that we will only discuss matter material causes only, because we cannot measure God, we cannot see or uh, do any statistical study of God in the sense that we would uh, something that we can, that has physical traits. So since God is non-physical, to talk about God would be philosophy, it would not be science. So that is why the uh, presence of a creator, an intelligent designer, is considered non-scientific. We will not even consider that. Even if God is there, we will not consider that, which to me is a rather, um, when you back yourself into a corner that you say, even if he does explain it and if he is there, I will not talk about him or consider him. If that's your position, you really narrow down your ability to understand what has happened. 
and maybe miss some very obvious things. But that is the secular push against faith. So here's the thing that happens. Many folks, a lot of teens, 20s, and 30s, and 40s, they've heard this for two generations, and uh, it's a bit intimidating to think all of the professors, all of academia, not all, but many, uh, the celebrities, uh, they ridicule faith, they ridicule the Bible, they ridicule belief in God, and, uh, but my mama, my grandmother, my grandfather, they believed in God, but they're not as smart as these scientists over here that say that's just superstition and that we don't need that anymore. So it creates a concern, a uh, sometimes doubt, and it's certainly concern. It's a bother to a lot of folks, um, and understandably so. But we do have Johnny Duke on our side. So we've got that going. Uh, but you can see how that would happen with, with someone that is, uh, here's the thing. The media pushes only one position. Uh, one position is pushed to the, to the omission of the other. I want you to know a few things as we get started tonight. Many, many scientists are also believers. You don't hear a lot about that. They don't get a lot of media, but we're going to look at a lot of them. They're highly credentialed. They are top-flight scientists in different fields, physics, astrophysics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, and so forth. So there are many believers who are very highly credentialed. They just do not get a lot of publicity. And it is still true that scientific fact and the Bible are not in conflict. Now, however, secular assumption that is woven into scientific theory is very frequently in conflict with faith and with the Scripture, and that's where the rub is. When articles are written and theory is not delineated from fact or assumption or speculation is pushed in with fact, you can get to positions that make faith look, well, that just doesn't work. Well, that's the problem. When you weave in things that are not fact into your presentation, but you don't sort them out. So secular assumption does contradict faith often. And religious assumptions can contradict scientific fact too. And the example I used was Galileo. Uh, Catholic Church convicted him of heresy way back because his idea was that the sun was the center, that the earth revolved around the sun, not vice versa. The Catholic Church says that is heresy, and he was excommunicated centuries ago. It was a case where religious faith at the time was in conflict with some solid science, and the religious position was in error. So the point is, whether we're coming from science or we're coming from faith, we just need to do our due diligence and really see what are the facts, because the truth of the, of the matter is, is that there will not be conflict with the facts of either. Neither discipline, uh, both bi disciplines are good. I need to speed up. 
the premise for faith is this, that God does not, is not limited to the physical realm. He is beyond the physical realm. That's why God can't die, because in the physical realm is where time is. That's where the laws of physics operate. But if God is outside the laws of physics, I'll use this illustration, if this, if this were time and God is operating outside of time, he can come into time he can be at the beginning of time, at the end of time, at the same time. But he is not limited by the laws that limit what goes on in here. He is beyond that. He is operating in another realm, in other dimensions. So that's the idea of God presented in Scripture. So an example of the secular position, real quickly. Most people, this is Alan Guth, MIT. Most people want to know where we came from. We no longer have to rely on the stories we were told when we were young. What do you think he's talking about? We don't have to rely on the stories we were told when we were young. So he, an article was written a few years ago, 2002, in Discover Magazine. Where did everything come from? The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. The universe burst into being. Uh, and it got bigger and bigger as time went on. It became filled and filled with more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. Uh, this is just not making a lot of sense to me. But that is what he's proposing in quantum physics, quantum theory. <clears throat> How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation explains everything. Well, it really doesn't, and it's just a theory. I mean, you, we can have a theory, any kind of theory we want to have, and it should be based on fact or trends or evidence of some sort. But sometimes people take a step beyond what they can really prove or know, and you can end up in positions where you're saying stuff like this. It came from absolutely nothing. That, first of all, violates the first law of thermodynamics. There is no physical process by which matter or energy can be created or destroyed. It can be changed in form. It can't be made from nothing. It can't be annihilated. It's always being changed in form. That's, that's a basic law of all of our physics. So Gus' theory violates that. Uh, it goes on in page 35 of this article, quantum theory holds that things can materialize out of a vacuum. Theoretically, anything, this is in the article, theoretically anything, a dog, a house, a planet, can pop into existence by means of a quantum quirk, which physicists call a vacuum fluctuation. Well, yes, theoretically, it could pop into existence. It's never been seen or experienced. There's no physical evidence that that has ever or could happen, but that would explain everything, wouldn't it? it I like the thing here of, uh, on the cover, as the universe got bigger, more and more stuff started coming into it for, that came from absolutely nowhere. That's... thing that happens is millions of people see a magazine cover. They don't necessarily read the article and really critically think about it. 
they read the cover and say, well, I guess they've got this figured out. And because science is really good, you know, it's really sharp. We're really, we're doing good. And you just read headlines, you read summaries, and you think, well, yeah, well, there goes faith. Oh, that is old-fashioned. You look at this, to use his word, stuff more closely and start using some logic and, uh, and apply some basic laws, fundamental laws of physics, and say, hmm, I don't think so. Secularists say to believe in a creating, uh, creative intelligence, God, is not scientific, but at the same time will pitch theories that say things can pop into existence as being scientific. Theoretically. Really? Why wouldn't a creating intelligence make more sense to explain complexity in organization than saying, Stephen Hawking expressed a similar idea in his book, Brief History of Time. Actually, yeah, it was in that book. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing at all? In other words, a secular position sees no purpose. There's really no purpose. If it came from nowhere by some process that nobody knows what it was into something and we're here by chance... Really, you have no value and no purpose. If you came from nowhere by chance, then there's no underlying reason for you to be here, for anything to be here. And that's what Hawking is expressing here. Why does the universe bother to even exist? He doesn't see purpose. That's the problem, the secular problem, not seeing purpose. The faith position is, I see great purpose in our being. We have a reason to live and to be. There is great purpose in the creation. Uh, this expresses, Hawking expresses the futility of the secular material-only position. Why does it even bother to be here? The editor of that magazine, Brad Limley, says the universe is unlikely. Very unlikely, deeply, shockingly unlikely. And Peter Ward at the University of Washington, we are just incredibly lucky. So there's no explanation from secular science to explain our being here. It, there's no reason for it. You have no purpose. It doesn't make any sense. We're just here. You know what? I want more than that, if there can be more than that. I want to understand and, of course, we looked last week, we looked at, at Romans 1.20. Since the creation, the beginning of time, the invisible nature of God, His eternal power and divine attributes can be clearly seen through what has been made so that those that do not acknowledge Him have no excuse. God says through the Scripture that look at the organization, look at the design, look at what I've done, and know that I am. And there's no excuse if you say, where's God? 
God says, no excuse. That's the faith position. This is, this is one of the saddest. Well, let's read it. This guy's a Nobel Prize winner, physicist. George Wald. Actually, I said physicist. I believe he was a biologist. There are two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a creative act of God. Spontaneous generation that life arose from non-living matter was disproved 120 years ago by Pasteur and some other guys. That leaves us with only one possible conclusion, that life arose by the supernatural creative act of God. However, I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in what I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arriving, arising to evolution. You're a Nobel Prize winner. You say, I know that it's scientifically impossible that it just came into being, but I don't want to believe in God, so I'm going to believe it. Very, very sad. What can you say to that? Not much. It does show... Let me read this. Wall speaks for many who for whom the secular position on origins, material only, first cause, material only, is an emotional decision, and it's not always based on fact. It may be even counter to fact, such as he explained. It's emotional religion in some cases. We don't want to believe in God. That's an option. Sorry, Benita, after class, I can't cover 78 slides and get through. Uh, you weren't here last week, and I had that disclaimer. Sorry. I do not want to believe. So, design. What is it? Let's talk about it briefly. Design is the result of intelligent planning, isn't it? And it doesn't have to be complicated. There's a purpose for this little thing. I think all of us know what the purpose is, and we know that immediately. And we also know it didn't just happen by chance. How do we know that? Because we use our experience, our logic, and we see a certain shape, a certain... We know there's a purpose for this, and we all understand what the purpose is. And just the same with this. It's something logic does. The result of intelligent planning. Now, intelligent design, this was really popularized about 15 years ago. It's, it's growing in momentum. Stephen Meyer and some other guys are the ones that have really brought this to the fore. Michael Behe, William Dembski, and some others. <clears throat> intelligent design, the observation of specified functional complexity. Specified functional complexity. Ordered structure or information that is common to the action of an intelligent agent and would not derive from chance or blind motion. 
or of undirected natural causes. Design is very different. Intelligent design is very different than the than blind motion of the wind of something sloshing together just with no direction and design. Thought is going into design. So that's the idea of intelligent design. Secular objections to intelligent design. Intelligent design invokes the supernatural or super superior intellect and that is which is not observable or testable by natural means. Therefore, intelligent design is considered unscientific or pseudoscience because it does not say matter only. Intelligent design says, let's look at what's happened here and let's consider does chance best explain it or does thought best explain it? Can intelligent design be deducted or concluded based on observation? That becomes the question. Can you look at something, can you look at a circumstance, and can we, can we observe and say, I can make a deduction about this, I see intelligence behind it, and can we be sure, relatively sure, that that is accurate? My position is, I think so. For example... So we've got five doors. Door number one, a snowstorm. I'll just, I'll just tell you, three of the fives are from intelligent design. And you know what? I bet you can pick, or already did pick, all three. We just know where, if you can see that, that's a house under construction, that's a tornado, that's a snowstorm. Intelligent design shows specified structural complexity to perform or do or fulfill a purpose, intelligent design. Now, one of two things is true. You know this. We're here either as the result of intelligent design or blind chance and undirected movement of matter. It's one or the other. It's either from the blind force of matter moving and creating and organizing everything, or it's the result of a blueprint and of thought. One or the other is true. Do living cells, metabolic processes, DNA coding, Protein synthesis, skeletal and muscular systems, and on and on and on. Do they show design or do they show specified complexity? Uh, to me, specified complexity. Functional, specified complexity. Now, here's an interesting thing, the SETI Institute. So this was around for 40-something years. Now, that's an interesting thing, and, and so SETI stands for, and I like their logo they have there, that backwards S with a question mark sort of thing, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we had radio telescopes all around the globe scanning the skies, the cosmos, for radio signals, because if we could find radio signals, code, somewhere in the cosmos, that would tell us there is an intelligence out there, and we want to contact that intelligence. That's what radio signals would tell us. Morse code. 
So we spent millions of dollars, uh, most, it was nonprofit, most of it, <clears throat> uh, searching for intelligence. Code always requires intelligence. Radio signals, Morse code that said he would tell us, ah, oh, we found somebody on the other side of the galaxy. They're, they're using mathematical codes to communicate to us. Or as in E.T., they're using musical notes to communicate to it. Not E.T. What was that? Close Encounters. The SETI project was all about finding code. But code requires intelligence. Now, here's the thing. Let's use the same logic. Genetic codes in DNA. The genetic codes in DNA are spe specified, ordered, nucleotide bases that create, that relay information to create function. And it's just like the pages on a book, the, a page in your Bible. If you go moving the letters of the alphabet around on that page in your Bible, you move very many, uh, very much of that alphabet around, and all of a sudden those verses are not saying, are not making sense. Same thing with the genetic code. You cannot be moving the nucleotide arrangement around. It's got to be precise right where it is. So more on that next week in the lesson on evolution. Let's, let's move on. The thing is, secular science has not explained the chance origination origin of DNA. Intelligent design does explain it. Blind movement of matter does not explain it. Does not explain it. But we have it. Archaeological science also uses ID inferences, intelligent design. Archaeological science. You look at this, so we all know about Stonehenge. One of two things is true. Those stones got there by some kind of just a, a unbelievable force, throwing them up there, and they landed in certain positions, or someone placed them there for religious purposes or whatever. Everybody, nobody, zero people doubt that intelligence was behind Stonehenge. We know it was people. We don't know how they put them there, but we know it was intelligence. Do the objects show order? Yes. Does the stone placement show purpose? Or is it purposeful or random? It's purposeful, obviously. They're doing something. There's an intelligent design deduction made by observing that, even though we didn't see it happen. We look at it, we make an observation, a deduction. Intelligent design is credible and valid. Is intelligent design a scientific concept? Well, look at this. We use intelligent design to do science. We make machines, we make measurements, we make uh, any number of uh, computer programs, whatever it is, to do science. All of that stuff we use to do science is intelligently designed. So we use it to do science. So why would you say you can't say it's behind what we see, that someone else used it? 
that another being used it. We use it. Why couldn't a superintelligence use it as well? Why would we deny the existence of something creating us when we use the same thing that we say is not scientific? Why isn't intelligent design a valid explanation for the complexities that we see? And the complexities are everywhere. Everywhere. Specified functional complexity everywhere. Ordered complexity every, everywhere. Why wouldn't we conclude there is intelligent design behind that more than we would think that just came together. It was not directed. It was blind force. That's where you've got to go to to explain everything if you don't include a superintelligence. That's where the logic takes you. And that is why secular science has not, as Neil deGrasse Tyson said in his Cosmos uh, show in 2014, we don't know how life started. There's no answer from that position. They have no answer. We have an answer. A logical answer. A lot of you will recognize Dr. Timothy Johnson from Good Morning America. Back in the 70s and 80s, he's still around, by the way. So he wrote a book about 15 years ago, Finding God in the Questions. He makes this statement. We can be argued into thinking the whole cosmos was by chance. Why is it that we would never accept this argument for the simplest of objects, but we will accept it for the most remarkable of all? He says, we wouldn't use chance to explain the most simple things. Why would we use it to explain things that are much, much more complex? So, there you go. You got a mousetrap. Eight, eight parts to a mousetrap. I will bet a bet that no one in here thinks it happened by chance. Why do we not think it happened by chance? Because we see specified complex functionality. The parts have to be not only certain sizes, they have to be in certain positions, connect at certain points, in certain ways, certain dimensions. It's all got to come together at the same time to work, or it will not work. Design. We wouldn't use it, that's what Dr. Johnson is saying, we wouldn't use chance to explain the most simple things. Why would we use it to explain things that are much, 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 much more complex? Let's move on. Fair question. Okay, we got 21 or 2 minutes. Oh, i got to speed up. So I may start skipping things, leaving out some things. Think quick and think in between the lines. 
We looked at this last week very quickly. Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with a very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life and which has an underlying plan, a very unique event which you cannot explain by a material-only, matter-only start. Won't work. Doesn't work. Interesting. This is a conundrum. That's a good word, isn't it? Stephen Hawking, he said, the overwhelming impression is, talking about the universe, the overwhelming impression is one of order. The more we discover about the universe, the more we find it is governed by rational laws. Stephen Hawking, Brief History of Time. Interesting thing, I said conundrum, because Hawking said, uh, like Dr. Wall said that we read, mm, you don't have to have God to explain it. You just have to have gravity. Gravity does not design. Gravity does not organize specified complexity. But Hawking acknowledges here that the more we see and learn about how the universe works, the more we can see rational behavior in the whole thing. The laws are rational. They work. The physics is rational. The math is rational. It is ordered. It is complex. It is specific. It is rational. That's an interesting choice of words he's using for someone who said no rational being was behind it, but the laws are rational. Conundrum. Stephen Barr, science can in no means explain away the rich design of, the natural, uh, of nature and its laws. Science has only shown design to be more magnificent than either anyone ever dreamed of. It's more complex. The more we learn, the more complex we know it is. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. God has to smile when he sees us search and find and learn things and just be amazed at what he's done. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, that God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. We've outsmarted ourselves in secular science. We say matter only. No. No doesn't explain any of the big questions. Getting a livable earth here, how hard can it be? Well, we don't have time to talk about how hard it could be, but we'll talk about a few of the things involved. First of all, you've got to be in the right kind of galaxy. You can't just have an earth and around a star in any old galaxy. There are different kinds of galaxies. They are not all suitable and will not all support a solar system like ours. That, uh, like the Seifert galaxy right there, exploding high radiation, high energy would just blow us out of the water, if you will. Uh, elliptical galaxies, 
not dense enough to support uh, a solar system like ours. So a lot of dust and gas in that. And, just, and then you got barred spiral galaxies. Um, whoops, I just went way too far. Um, several different kinds. We'll just cut to the chase. There's one kind that will support a solar system like ours. We're in a spiral galaxy known as the Milky Way. So when you look out at night and you see that thickening of stars that you see overhead, and you say, there's the Milky Way, you're looking through the, through the horizontal plane, one of the arms that, that, that we're inside as, it, as we spin there, 100 billion stars spinning around a super black hole in the middle. Location, 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 as David Gibson would say. Yes, location. You can't be just anywhere in a galaxy. You've got to be in a certain place if you're going to be a sun holding on to its planets and be safe and be stable and survive. There we are. We're sitting out on an arm away from the center where it's too much gravity, and we're out in a safe zone. There are actually four of those. Uh, just to look at this from the top, if, if we were looking... Uh, you can't be, you, you play Flying Jenny when you were young. I used to play that. And if you were a kid on the end of that string of people, you'd get slung off. Centripetal force. Same would happen with the sun holding on to its planets. If they were on the end of the arm spinning through space, those planets get spun off from the sun, jerked away. The sun is not big enough with enough mass to hold its planets around it if, if the centripetal force uh, is affecting it, if, if it's in a area that's overpowered. Gravitational, if you're too close, then the, the, gravi the gravity of the center of the solar system would pull the planets away from the sun. Of course, if you're near the middle, near the hub, there's too much radiation and energy we would cook. So you can't be just anywhere. So you have to be in a safe zone of lower energy, lower centripetal force, lower radiation, which we are. Lucky us. Worked out really well. Otherwise, it's Katie bar the door. Stay tuned. There's more. Don't go to sleep on me. But that was an excellent point. Uh, so, okay, let's go on. All right. One thing that's of concern is the right location with regard to our the magnetic field in, in our galaxy, and it's, it's thicker along the horizontal plane. Measurements of the magnetic field of a galaxy have shown a change in position of our solar system of only one quarter of a light year would be fatal to our solar system's stability. You can't be just anywhere in a galaxy. You've got, to, you've got to be in a safe zone with respect to the centripetal force, the radiational forces, the gravitational forces, and the magnetic forces to be able to stay with your sun, your star. And we are. It's just really neat how that worked out so well. I would say it's designed. So we're on the right kind of star, the right mass, the right radiational energy. The sun in the core, 27 million degrees, it converts 600 million tons of hydrogen into 596 million tons of helium every second and gives off 4 million tons of energy, heat energy. 
So the sun, every second that ticks by, the sun is reducing its mass by 4 million tons. It's pretty big. 4 million tons every second. It's just the right amount of radiation to heat us properly for the distance that we're located. Interesting point here made by Martin Rees. For the universe to exist as we know it. Now, this guy's not a preacher. He's a scientist. I'm showing us quotes from scientists because I want us to get the point that the Christian position of faith is based on logical science, good science with a lot of highly qualified people talking. Do not feel intimidated for being a person of faith. You're in good company Martin Rees says, for the universe to exist as we know it requires hydrogen to be converted to helium in a precise manner. Seven thousandths of its mass must be converted to energy. Lower the ratio to six thousandths of the mass. No hydrogen conversion would happen at all. Raise it to eight thousandths of, uh, of its mass and all the hydrogen would be exhausted. It's got to be right where it is. And that's the thing about the universal constants that we measure. They are all very picky. They are very highly balanced for everything to stay stable as it is, for everything to work. The more we learn about the constants, the physical constants and the laws at work, the more incredibly complex it is understood to be. It's got to be exactly like it is, or it all blows up, or nothing happens. It's perfect. It's precise. It's functionally complex and ordered. It is designed. You've got to be the right distance from the sun. So we're sitting here at 93 million miles. There's, uh, who is that? That's Venus. 67 million miles, a lot warmer. You go on out to the next one, you got Mars, average temperature. I left out a, I left out a digit. I think it's a lot higher than 80, minus 81, but let, we'll leave it there for now. Too cold in Mars, too warm in Venus. We're right where we need to be to, to be survivable. Just right. Isn't it fortunate that in the great explosion, in the big bang, and I believe when God said, let it be, I believe that was a big bang. I believe the energy that was unleashed was incredible. But isn't it neat that in that explosion that we just landed in right the exact spot when everything coalesced? Kind of strange for an explosion, wouldn't you think? Precise, this is, this, is, this is wild. The preciseness in the Earth's orbit. So we're going around the sun. If you're looking at it from the top to the bottom, we're going around counterclockwise. Now, if you're looking at it from the South Pole up, it's clockwise. But if you're looking from the North Pole down, it's counterclockwise. You can go home and put your hand on a table and work that out. It's really weird. The path of the orbit veers from a straight line one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles. 
Planets turning left one-ninth of an inch. One-ninth. This is an 8,000-mile diameter rock turning inside one-ninth of an inch every 18 miles in an elliptical orbit around the sun. If it was greater, if it was one-eighth of an inch, we would be pulled into the sun and burned up. If it was less, if it was one-tenth of an inch, we would be way out there and we would freeze. It's got to be just where it is. Planets have a certain mass, and mass affects the atmosphere. All gravity, all matter attracts all other matter. So if you're in a planet with a lot of mass, if there's an atmosphere around you, and they all don't have atmospheres, but if there is an atmosphere around you and you have a large mass, you're going to pull the atmosphere in. The atmosphere is going to become very, very dense, like breathing water. And we don't do that very well. But if you're on a planet, if you're in a planet, if Mercury was 93 million miles from the sun like we are, but with very small mass, it doesn't have enough mass to hold the atmosphere at the right consistency it needs to be for us to breathe. It would be like we were on the top of, what's that mountain over there, Everest? Air's too thin. Mercury doesn't have enough mass to hold the atmosphere the right consistency for us to breathe. So the earth is perfect in its mass to hold the atmosphere in a breathable consistency. Spin rate. Venus turns around every 5,832 hours. One revolution. One day on Venus is eight months long. You sure wouldn't want that to be a Monday. And a day on Jupiter is much quicker. But rate of spin has to also affects temperature. You know, the cowboys, they got the rabbit on the spit, and they're just turning it. If they turn that thing too fast, it's not going to cook, is it? Buffalo Gap, it wouldn't cook, right? Nope. If you turn it too slow, it's going to be burn on one side and raw on the other. The right rate is important, is critical for temperature balance. This is really cool. This is really cool. So we're tilted at 23 and a half degrees. We're sitting in space and we're like this. 23 and a half degrees, tilt. Why not straight up? Weird thing about the earth, the way it's situated. Tilt is balanced with several things. One is the ratio of land to water. So the earth is mostly water. What if the earth were mostly land? Temperature imbalance, terrific storms, superheating, and we would cook. Water absorbs heat energy a lot slower than land does. That is balanced so that our, uh, the uh, temperature of the planet stays in balance. And here's the thing. Watch this. Position. It matters where the position of the land and the water is. If you have most of the land in the southern hemisphere, it's not. It's, most of it's in the northern hemisphere. But if you had most in the south, you got problems. You're going to overheat. The land is where it needs to be. Now, way back, let's go back to the dinosaurs. We know that they lived in a warm climate, 
And we have dinosaur bones and we have palm trees up in Alaska. The earth's climate did not used to be like it is now. It was vastly different. You've got things that are very warm weathered things, critters, plants, and animals that, that are found in the very most northern parts of our planet. So at one point in time, that was warm. And I suppose as the land was moving around, was, was being positioned, the, the climate was changing. More on that maybe someday, but not tonight. So let's talk about this. The Earth's orbit is balanced. The temperature is a balance in distance, tilt, land and water ratio, land and water mass uh, ratio, and positioning, and the physical properties of land and water. All of that's balanced, and all of it matters. You can't have more land and less water, you got problems. You can't have the land in the wrong places, more problems. If, you, if the tilt changed, more problems. It's got to be just like it is. We're closer this time of year. We're 91 million miles from the sun than we were in the summer. We're further away in the summer. But because, look, look how the, the axis thing works there. So let me get back. Let's try this again, okay? When we're closer, the southern hemisphere is pointed toward the sun. And so in the winter, it's cooler up here, even though we're closer, two million miles closer. But water is absorbing heat a lot slower than land. But in the summer, we're three million miles further away, but the northern hemisphere is pointed toward the sun. And we're warmer in the, in the summer, even though we're further away. It's all balanced. If it were not that way, we would burn up or freeze. It's got to be just like it is. Now, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, what is that? It's amore. It's amore. Of course it is. Jake's saying, what just happened? Yeah, it's amore. The moon is really a pretty cool thing, literally and figuratively. The size and location of the moon affects more than just the tides. The size of the moon is balanced. The moon is pulling on the earth. The reason we have tides is because the gravity of the moon pulls the water up and down. If the moon had more mass, the tides would be more uh, accentuated we'd have problems. If the moon had more mass, the, the earth would spin slower. The tides would be much higher. The coastal cities would be underwater. It's got to be the distance it is and the size it is for everything to be bound. The moon affects our tides, our spin rate, our day length, and our temperature because it's the way it is. Smaller moon wouldn't work. Bigger moon wouldn't work. It's balanced. It is designed. Atmosphere, okay. Atmosphere, it's neat. There's more to say about that, but 
So it's balanced. It's balanced in such a way that it protects us. It expels cosmic rays. The reason the sky is blue is because the highest energy light coming from the sun is blue energy waves. We look up there, they're being bounced around by molecules in the atmosphere, and the sky is blue. The highest energy waves that come through in the greatest quantity are green. The leaves of trees are green, so they're reflecting green light, and that keeps them from cooking and allows them to produce the photosynthetic process that they do to give us oxygen. We just don't have enough time to talk through this. Protective, the right compounds, nitrogen and oxygen, the right, not only the right compounds, but the right ratio of those compounds. You don't want half nitrogen, half oxygen. Forest fires would never go out. We'd, that Decker fire would be all over the place. It's got to be balanced just like it is. 21% oxygen, 78% nitrogen, nine-tenths of a percent argon, and a few other things, four, four thousandths of a percent CO2. Proper density allows us to breathe it. Michael Denton, not a preacher, a scientist. Earth's, well, maybe he preaches some, some I don't know for sure. Earth's location, size, composition, structure, atmosphere, temperature, dynamics, and many intricate cycles testify to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precariously balanced, designed. Okay, we just got to go. We, um, look at this second quote here. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we would never have come into existence. These circumstances indicate the universe was, man for, was made for man to live in. Owen Gingrich, senior astronomer at the Smithsonian, so that's a pretty good credential. A common sense and satisfying interpretation of our world suggests the designing hand of a super intelligence. Your position of faith is in good company. Logical, scientific reasoning. So, one or two things happened. A windstorm or a blueprint. Only two options. Only two options for any of this. Every house is built by someone. The maker of all things is God. Amen. And the end. That's all, folks. Have a great week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.